Gabe Brown is one of my absolute favorite people. He has uh, been a wonderful resource through all of the uh, talks he's given, books he's written, and uh, he's just a sincere and amazing human being. When that comes together with something as important as regenerative agriculture and the passion he has for it, uh, he's somebody that I don't know that we can hear enough from. Welcome to the Sowing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a Blue Zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. Gabe, uh, so excited to be visiting with you again. Definitely one of my favorite people. I have just grown to love uh, your work and then, you know, our, our visits. And so just wanted to jump back on here again, catch up, see all the incredible things that you've been experiencing. Um, so Ray, Ray was on a while back and he had to reschedule last minute for an emergency trip to Paraguay. So it sounds like y'all are going all over so uh what's up what's going on what's the latest with understanding ag so well thank you it's great to be on logan always good to be with you uh understanding ag continues to grow by leaps and bounds in ways that we never would have envisioned you know six plus years ago ray archuleta david brandt dr alan williams and myself started understanding ag and and now, unfortunately, uh, with uh, David's passing and Ray, I had to laugh, Ray wanted to slow down and retire. So Ray stepped away and we brought on Shane New and Kathy Richburg as Alan and my partners. And uh, I don't think Ray's really slowed down though at all. As you said, he's in Paraguay, he's doing a lot of work in Central and South America. And that, that's good. We tell him that's a good spot for Ray. You know, let's let's put Ray down there educating everyone in Spanish and Portuguese and everything else. So good place for Ray, but understanding ag itself has continued to expand. We're we're consulting on over thirty-four million acres across North America and in uh England and Ireland now. Just just previous to coming on with you was on with uh a company that uh, does a lot of work in in Spain and the UK, and they're looking to engage us some work over there. And, you know, I don't know. It seems to me we probably still have enough to do here in the States, but uh, the interest is coming from all over the world, and that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. That's uh, the the mission and the message uh, seems to really be going uh, out there. You know, one thing uh, that stood out to me is somebody said that the messenger is as important as the message. And it's something that I hadn't really heard. And I, I started thinking and I think that everybody I talk to has kind of this uh, reverence for you and they appreciate you. And that I think that this is, is it is a good testament 
because of what I believe is like your servant's heart. I think everybody I talk to just kind of lights up when they talk about Gabe. Why Why do you think that you have been so successful at getting that passion out there and that, uh, you know, servant's heart? Well, that's kind of you to say, Logan. But uh, I don't know. I tell people, you know, Gabe Brown is a poor cattleman, even worse farmer, but I can grow soil. I, I'm pretty decent at growing soil, but the good Lord blessed me with a very big mouth and the ability to communicate. And, you know, you know my story. I really believe that I was put through, my family and I were put through those four years in order to share our message. And I was there. I think what why I resonate and the message resonates is I was in the conventional mindset. I was a conventional farmer rancher for years until those four years of disasters. And they, you know, those four years showed me, I'm truly blessed they happened. It showed me a different way. And I just happen to have a big enough mouth where I can, uh, where I can talk to people and I'm, I'm not afraid to stand in front of a group. And so, I think the story resonates because all of us have had some tough times. And and I think hearing that from somebody else simply resonates with people and they can perhaps switch places with me. You know, most farmers and ranchers have been through some type of a weather event that uh, impacted them negatively financially. And we've all been through personal health crisis, et cetera. And so we can relate. And it's simply about relating to people. Relating, man. I, I think another way is you deliver you deliver in a way that's not condescending and going out and just telling everybody they're wrong, right? Like you try to meet people where they are. And I think that's why understanding ag has really took took off. Y'all go meet people where they are to help them from your experience. And uh, it's beautiful. Yeah, and... You know, I give Ray Archuleta the credit for uh, really pushing us to add the sixth principle of context and how important context is and that everyone's context is a little bit different. So the principles are the same, you know, how to uh, advance soil health, but the context of each individual, farm, ranch, location, community, that's a little different. Each person's financial context is different. You know, I tell people my financial context today is a lot different than it was at the end of those four years when we were a million and a half in debt and, you know, trying to crawl our way out of that hole. And you have to take people where they're at and understand, you know, not everybody is going to have the financial context to be able to go change to no-till equipment. Not everyone has the location that you can graze livestock 365 days a year, for instance, even though we can get really close, you know, our, our context is a little bit different. And so you have to approach people where they're at. And, you know, oftentimes when we work with clients, all of us have a different aversion to risk, okay? I'm kind of a risk taker. It doesn't bother me. I'll, if, you know, one of, the, one of the best 
bits of advice I ever got was, Gabe, you only got to give me 75% there. If I'm 75% there, I'm going to buy in because if I stumble and fall, I'm still going to be falling forward. And I thought, wow, that's great advice when you think of it in the realm. So everyone has a different aversion to risk. What is that? Well, I've worked with clients who they're going to try these new soil health practices on a field that's over the hill that nobody else can see and a very small scale. And then on the opposite end, I've worked with uh, farmers that 8,000 acres of cover crops first year, you know, makes sense to me. I'm doing it, you know. And so you've got to take people where they're at. And then as their comfort level expands, they, their aversion to risk will become less and they will be able to realize, hey, there are benefits to doing this financially, ecologically, etc. Let's move forward at a greater pace. Would that be the the biggest thing, profitability, on what is catching on, do you think? Uh, just changing some methods and being more resilient and profitable? It's uh, a great question. And I think there's this misnomer out there. People think, well, you're going to convert to, quote, unquote, regenerative ag. We're going to have a, a period of time where we're less profitable and yields go down and that couldn't be farther from the truth, not if it's done correctly. And I think this is one of the main reasons for the success of understanding ag is we take people where they're at and we increase their profitability very quickly. Nothing will get a farmer or rancher to change their mind more quickly than increased profit. And you know how the current production model works. It's all about let's be involved in a government program and be very set in our rotations. And we know we can lock in through revenue insurance X amount of gross income. Well, okay, let's do that. Rather than, hey, let's step up the soil health principles, the, the rules of adaptive stewardship and be able to cut back on our inputs while increasing profitability. And I really think we have a major issue that's coming to fruition in production agriculture all over the world and that we're trying to outproduce our environment. And every environment is a bit different. For me, I'll never forget, one of my aha moments was 2009, I was combining corn. My son Paul was away at college and I was talking to him on the cell phone and I was complaining a little bit about my corn yield. And he said, well, dad, you're trying to outproduce our environment. And man, it was like, I just, I'll never forget. I know the exact field I was at, I know the direction I was traveling. It was just one of those moments that, holy smokes, he's right. You know, in North Dakota, okay, I get 10 to 12 inches of rainfall a year and another, you know, five to seven inches from snow. That's a pretty limited moisture environment. Now, I have hit over 200 bushels an acre dryland corn, 
but only once, you know, everything had to align. We had excess moisture that year. I can't expect it every year. So my point, Logan, is why would I go fertilize and add all the inputs, pushing for a 200 bushel yield, knowing that's not sustainable? I may grow it once in 30 or 40 years on my operation, but I'm going to burn through more carbon. We're going to, you know, we're going to be negative on our organic matter that year. It's going to have some negative impacts. Then if I keep adding those inputs, expecting that high yield year after year and pushing for maximum yield, what's the effect on water quality issues, on aggregation, on organic matter, carbon levels? And what we're really seeing because of this mentality of trying to outproduce our environment, we're seeing desertification take place. You know, look what's happening all over you know, the Corn Belt, the I-States, I mean, you drive the amount of erosion and degradation is unbelievable. Yeah, they can grow 250, 300 bush of corn year after year, but at what cost? What cost not only to the environment, what cost to our human health, what cost to long-term sustainability of the ecosystem? It's not going to happen. So I think we need to uh, roll things back a bit. And then the next question I'll often get asked, oh, but Gabe, that's not going to work. We got to feed the world. Well, first of all, we don't have to feed the world. The world needs to feed itself. Second of all is look at the amount of acres being farmed today. How many of those acres truly really go for human consumption of food? Okay, very, very small percentage. So don't give me that crap about feeding the world. That's what it is. No, we need to grow nutrient-dense food. And then we need to focus also at the same time, how do we sustain this for mankind and all, all life on earth for eons of time to come? I think that you just kind of made that perfect argument for a localized regenerative food system. Um, that's it, It's just gotten so out of hand with the centralization of, of food and, and everything else for that matter. But, you know, my, my wife on why we want to keep promoting this and get the awareness out there is, is, is to, the solution for overcoming diseases. It, it, it starts mm-hmm. right here with what you're saying on the soil with the lack of things. You know, we talked to, you know, Stephanie Sneff and she has done an amazing job laying out the harm of glyphosate, right? And we, we get into some of the other works, um, to where, Gabe, I've really gone super pro meat, almost to the extreme of carnivore. For, mm-hmm. for most of the time. And that's, that's honestly based off of talking with people that are getting results and then backing mm-hmm. that up with science over and over. And one mm-hmm. thing that y'all have done is taking this animal agriculture, the ruminant raising, and you're improving the land, you're providing an, e- an, an ecological positive impact for wildlife and everybody that lives around it and a nutrient dense product. Cause again, mm-hmm. I'm super pro animal-based diet. We've got uh, Van Vliet, Stevan Van Vliet coming up, and I know that you've referenced him and worked with him in some of his work. What have you been most surprised or excited with on the things that, that he's come up with? 
Yeah, well, that's great. The work Stefan's doing, Dr. Fred Provenza, Dr. Scott Kronberg, we're very fortunate on understanding ag is that we've been able to work with them to help identify some of these farms where they're doing comparisons. So we're identifying regenerative farms, conventional farms. Okay. And I'm blessed that, that uh, two years ago they were on our ranch uh, doing work on it. The thing that surprised me the most is the consistency of results. And what I mean by that, Logan, is it's not like you would have these outliers where, boy, it's a really healthy ecosystem and we're getting nutrient-dense food. But we're seeing consistency from the standpoint the regeneratively managed, if we put it that way, farms and ranches are consistently outperforming the quote unquote conventionally managed farms and ranches, the products that are produced, grown and raised on those farms and ranches. It's just consistent. Now there'll be variability in these phytochemicals that they're measuring, but it's consistently at a level of being what we would consider more nutrient dense. To me, that's exciting. That shows us a few things. One, it's scary. It shows us just the negative impact mankind has had on our foods. And all that, realized comes about from the soil. So, so our actions, our management, and I, I, you know me, I don't hold any punches. I say our lack of good stewardship has degraded the resource. Okay. But now we know better. Okay, I'm not going to sit here and condemn, for example, my father-in-law who farmed very conventionally with tillage and a lot of synthetic inputs. He was using what he thought was the best management practices at the time, but we know better now. And we know, thanks to the work of Drs. Van Vliet, Provenza and Kronberg, they're taking and showing and the work of Dr. Stephanie Seneff and many, many others we could go through a long list, that if we pay attention to what we're doing and focus on soil health and ecosystem health, it's going to positively affect the food that we grow and raise. And I really think, you know, COVID had, there was many negative things that happened from COVID, but there was also some lessons we learned that we need to pay attention to. One of those is something you mentioned a moment ago about the localized food system. You know, COVID exposed that we can't be shipping food halfway across the world. It's, for one, it's way too high in fossil fuel usage. Two, it's not going to be nutrient-dense food. There's no way you can pick a fruit or vegetable at the peak of its phytochemical nutrition and ship it halfway around the world. That just isn't gonna work, okay? But it's also brought about this awareness that we need to pay more attention to our food and our food really is our health. And, and uh, I think we need to get to the point, and we talked about this last time I was on, where food is preventative medicine and we're consuming food as preventative medicine, you know, 
healthcare costs have gone through the roof, putting it mildly. And look at that. I mean, it's not sustainable by society by any means. You know, uh, we need to get into the prevention mode. And the prevention lies in what we put in our mouth. Unfortunately, that we don't typically make a change until it hurts, though. Uh, you know, for me, I don't know if, if I wouldn't have been faced with my son having cancer, if if oh, we definitely wouldn't be here having this conversation. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, and you wouldn't have changed if you wouldn't have had the terrible storms mm -hmm. of, and, and, mm -hmm. and the loss. And so, like, it's almost, Gabe, it's almost disheartening a little bit that you don't want to see people suffer, but at the same time, people don't typically make a change, speaking for myself, until it hurts. And so I do struggle with that a little bit. Yep. And I don't know that there's anything you or I can do about them except for the fact doing what we're doing, educating, lead by example. And I think that's the best uh, route is, you know, you show people in everything you do, whether it's in what you consume yourself, whether it's in how you grow and raise the products that you offer uh, to consumers, you need to lead by example. And, and uh, all of us can do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I love I love that. That's uh, that's one of the things where that consistency comes in. And I think that you've been doing it for a long time and stayed consistent. And, and that's why, that, you know, that you're where you are uh, is consistency with the message. One thing that has really uh, become evident is the lack of a localized food system most most anywhere. And and with that, the the benefits that come with a localized food system. So going back to, you know, Dr. Van Vliet, when we look at the food that is produced locally, harvested at, at the peak, right, of when it's supposed to be, and then consumed, the nutrient availability is massive. I'm I'm curious to to know if 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 there's an entity you know of that's working towards a nutrient density guide, so to speak, to where we can see that visually based off of nutrient comparison, say to, you know, a, a regular, um, you know, grain fed beef versus grass fed is, is that something that you're aware of at all? Well, I think there's a couple of things. There's a couple of different directions. I can go with that question. Great question. I agree with you 110%. The lack of local food systems is, is evident everywhere. So I know of technology that is being developed that has the ability to um, identify these phyto chemicals, these phytonutrients that Dr. Van Vliet talk, talks about. Uh, it's being developed as we speak. It's beginning to be tested. That's exciting. Now, is it to the scale of the mass spectrometer that Dr. Van Vliet used? No. You know, Dr. Van Vliet, I believe, and you'd have to ask him, something like 2,300 different phytochemical compounds that he can identify using that mass spectrometer. I don't think this will have that range yet, but it'll be developed over time. Now that's a ways out, but 
what is occurring very quickly is regenerative verifications such as Regenified that are proving out the practices that are occurring on farms and ranches and then throughout the supply chain. You know, Whole Foods uh, adopted and uh, Regenified's protocols and practices. Uh, the Food Safety Inspection Service with USDA um, approved Regenified's practices. It's the only approved uh, certification for label at this point in time. And so you're, you're going to start seeing more and more of these products that have that certified Regenified label. And that gives consumers confidence. It's a mark of confidence and they know, yep, if I buy this product, I have the confidence and guarantee that it was grown in a ray in a grown or raised in a way that is regenerative. And I think we're going to see more of that. And we're going to see that expand significantly. That's a start, you know, by far the best I say though, is get to know your farmer, buy local, get to know them. That's the best. And I really think as a society, we need to go back to more of uh, eating seasonally and definitely eating local. And, you know, if I was to walk you around the house here, I'd take you into our pantry where that's chock full of, of canned goods that we put up from this past year's harvest, you know? And people say, oh, I don't have time for that. Well, what's your health worth? What's the health of your children worth? Make the time. You know, my family and I, that's one of our things we really enjoy is, is we'll have canning days and just, you know, one day will be pickles, next day will be beets. And we put enough, enough to last a couple years of that individual product, whatever nature's providing. And there's no better food, you know, why not? The, the seasonal approach and then, and then even, you know, more of the meat base is, gone it's been supported so much from kind of these ancestral experts that we visited with like you know bill schindler suzanne alexander dr chris kenobi there, there's a lot of them and they they lay out this seasonal local uh the vast majority are meat heavy and the other thing that a lot of the societies ancestrally were having was this communal aspect so getting together and canning that's so mm -hmm. supportive to what you just said yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. And obviously, you're, you're, you're speaking to something that's near and dear to me when we talk about the pastured proteins and how animals are so critical to heal ecosystems, landscapes. We need animals on there. Well, why wouldn't they be an important part of our diet then? And you know, that's a decision each person can make. I'll let them make that for themselves. But I often get asked, Gabe, on your ranch with what you've been able to do and increase carbon levels, organic matter levels, what made the biggest difference? And I said, you know, they asked, well, was it the, the cover crops? Was it the diversity of cash crops? I said, no. The thing that made the biggest difference was in the use of animals as a tool, whether that be our beef, 
our lamb, our pork, our chickens, the stacking of those different animal proteins, and then moving them across the landscape. The result, it took soil health to a whole nother level. And I always get asked, you know, from farmers, okay, can I advance soil health if I just grow corn and beans? And I says, well, yeah, we can make some small improvements. You go no-till, you plant a cover crop, but your soils will never be as healthy as they could be if you integrate livestock. It's just a win-win situation. And why not take advantage of that? You know, so often in agriculture, when I work with a client, they complain about, well, there's limited profitability. Well, are you stacking enterprises? Are you growing cover crops and running livestock on those covers? Well, no, I don't want to do that. Well, okay, but don't complain to me that you have no money, right? I, I just refuse to buy that, you know? Come on, you know, that's your choice then, right? But don't expect the urban taxpayer to supplement you, to keep you in business if you're not willing to do what's necessary yeah. to keep yourself in business. Yeah, that and that's whole, a whole other thing. It, it really is, Gabe. You should start talking the farm bill. Uh, I know we'll get worked up talking about the farm bill. Uh, yeah. One, Do you have an example of a farm that's just sure enough uh, taking the, the lessons to heart? And you have a success story? Oh, Sure. I'll share one with you. So uh, 2018, a uh, young producer lives 100 miles north of me, approximately in North Dakota, reached out to me, wanted to know if I could have a few minutes to visit with him about soil health. Started talking to him. And as a matter of fact, that year we were having, uh, that he would talk to me in late fall, harvest was complete. And we were having a Soil Health Academy down at Ray Archuleta's place. And I told him, you really need to come to that academy. And, and this is a strict crop farmer, no livestock. Almost all rented land, doesn't own much land himself. So to his credit, he brought his wife, he, his wife, and a neighbor couple made the trip, drove down to Missouri, attended the academy. He went home and he bought in hook, line, and sinker. He educated himself. He spent time watching as many YouTube videos and uh, going to workshops, learning what he could. Implemented the Johnson Sioux method of making an extract in order to put on his seed because he thought that's one way if he used that Johnson Sioux extract to inoculate, so to speak, the biology on that seed, he could jumpstart things. Now, he already was uh, pretty far down the no-till path, was not very far down the cover crop path, but this is how intentional he became. He would combine, as most people do in our environment, you can start combining in the afternoon, combine till dark or a bit after, the next morning, he would be in a tractor pulling a drill, seeding cover crops in that field where he had combined the previous afternoon and evening. Even though here in North Dakota, we only have about 110 frost-free days, there are cold-tolerant species that will grow and extend your growing season. Well, what he's been able to do in four years, he has 
cut his fertility, by that I mean synthetic fertility, 40 to 60%, depending on the crop. He's cut his herbicides significantly, 100% reduction. He no longer uses any insecticides, pesticides at all, and no fungicides, which is pretty rare for Northern North Dakota. He also has diversified his crop rotation. And he told me the last two years have been his two most profitable years. Okay. Amazing story. And now he is marketing. He's direct marketing his product. And I happen to know for a fact that the wheat he's growing, some of it went into a private, a, a labeled brand for King Arthur Flower. And so he is taking marketing to the next level now also. And I tell you what, to see that evolve over four sh short years, it's pretty amazing, just quickly. That's but he became intentional. As my partner Shane New likes to say, you gotta be intentional. You can't just go part way. You're either going to do it or you're not. And you got to be intentional. And I always tell people when they call me and are interested in going down the regenerative path, they always ask me, well, am I able to eliminate, you know, synthetics? What can I do? And I said, you have to look in a mirror because the answer is staring right back at you. That's your choice. How intentional are you going to be? What are you willing to do? It's easy to make up excuses. You know, oh, I didn't get the rain. I didn't get, no, 90 plus percent of it's on you, okay? You need to be intentional and then you determine the outcomes. If your farm or ranch isn't what you want it to be, that's on you. That's on nobody else. It's on you. I think that accountability helps us uh, make those changes that, that matter, right? Like when we always blame things outside of our control, it's all, it's never our fault. It's never up to us to, to make a, a change. So I, I like how, how you laid that out there. When uh, we talked to Ray, he, he mentioned, I, I asked him if you were the secretary of uh, ag for Arkansas, what, you know, what would you do? And, you know, he kind of, kind of him hawed and said that basically cover the state cover the land in something. So, you know, you drive through Arkansas and it's bare, a big part of the, the year, uh, cover, cover the land. So why is that cover cropping so important? Yeah, and it comes down, you know, why do we have the six principles of soil health, three rules of adaptive stewardship? It's to drive the four ecosystem processes. You know, and Alan Savory laid that out so well, those four ecosystem processes. And the first process is that of the energy cycle. And it's what we learned about back in grade school and junior high. It's photosynthesis, plants, photosynthesizing, capturing sunlight. And you look at what's lacking today. And, you know, I've traveled extensively uh, all over North America and then several other foreign countries. It's the same everywhere. You have to intercept that sunlight with a living leaf. Living plant material has to intercept that sunlight. Photosynthesis occurs. All those different carbon molecules go part of it, go for growth in the plant. Part of it translocated to the roots, exuded out to feed biology. 
And that's how you start aggregation. So that improves the water cycle, the nutrient cycle, biodiversity, everything evolves around plants collecting sunlight. So I challenge farmers, ranchers all the time, walk out into your crop field, into your pastures, wherever it may be, how much sunlight is hitting the soil? How much sunlight is not being intercepted by a leaf? That's where you got to start. It's that simple. So Ray's absolutely right, because everything ties into that. When, I mean, what you just said is basically the exact opposite of desertification, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. that's, just cover it. Like, that's what's happening and why deserts continue to grow is a lack of plants, um, a lack of, of the moisture being retained there in the soil and, mm-hmm. and improving it. So, Gabe, where I see kind of a uh, little bit of a a downside is the re- in the regenerative localized food systems is is margin right and that is a, you either have to do direct market which i feel like a lot of farmers are going to in that regenerative space but having having some sort of relationships with farmers markets uh with restaurants with some sort of value added on a on a you know a commerce scale having having that in there is very very important to absorb the excess so where where do you see the support coming from first maybe uh for for the regenerative farmers to kind of make sure that the whole wheel keeps keeps going I really think, great question. I really think there's major opportunities for what I would consider aggregators. You know, it's difficult for one operation to have the array and diversity that consumers want, okay? And so can't we have aggregators that who's got what coming in, bring them together and then offer them not only to consumers, but I think we need to start with public school systems. Also all school systems, let's put them into our school systems and really, you know, put nutrient dense food in the mouths of our children. There's a lot of different ways that, that uh, we can utilize the food that's being grown help the individual farmers, but do it in a way that benefits all of them. And, and you know, I, I partially, I, I, you know, I ask that, you know, self-serving too, because that's what, you know, I do. I own a farmer's mm-hmm. market where we aggregate that. That's the whole thing. But there is a, a lot that goes into, into the aggregation and even the distribution, whether that's retail or to other, we work with all kinds of chefs and, and restaurants and there's an education process there. There, how would you, as a farmer and being in, in so many different things, how would you best relate the need for that aggregation and to relay that value that comes in with the aggregating, distributing, marketing, and even the retail side for the farmer to fully grasp that that is a need and a value? Another good question. And I think, This is one of the challenges, really, you know, farmers and ranchers for (laughs) 
centuries, you know, have uh, bought at retail, sold at wholesale and paid the freight both ways. And they're so used to such slim margins that they need to focus on business first. You know, one of the things we work with a wide array of different clients and farmers and ranchers as a rule, and I know I'm going to catch static for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Farmers and ranchers as a rule are excellent at producing things. You know, they can grow corn, they can raise beef animals, whatever the case may be, but they're terrible marketers and they're, they're not that good a business people. Their business sense by and large is not that good. So I think the way to approach it is from the standpoint of, okay, common ground for common good. How can we come together to help each other in a way that'll increase our profitability and provide the consumers with what they want, which is exactly what I think you're doing. Some of the best examples of success that we've had are partnering with more of these, you know, family family farms. They're they're not massive operations by any stretch, but we will we will commit to buying their entire harvest, whether that's a, a mm. strawberry crop, a tomato crop, a, you know, all the eggs they can produce, just kind of whatever that mm. is, and. It has gone over so well because they'll tell you, I don't want to go set up at a farmer's market on a Saturday yeah. morning. I don't yeah. want people coming to my house all the time to pick up onesies and twosies of stuff. So they're able to bring it all to us. As, you know, there's quality control. There's there's things in there. But they bring us the entire harvest of what they have for the day. And mm-hmm. then we we market it. We, we take mm-hmm. it to the restaurants or we have their chefs come to us or we turn it into salsa, tomato sauce, or jams, jellies, whatever it needs to happen. But they don't have to do anything other than farm and bring it to us. And it has worked so, so well. So do you see a need for maybe a farmer's market education, a retail farming um, education? Let, let me use this as to explain my answer. So back in like 2011, 2012, there was a number of us in the Bismarck Mandan community here in North Dakota who wanted to start a local food co-op. And uh, so a lot of rounds, a lot of pushing, raised the money, um, rented the building, had money for operating. And the key in my mind to that was, you know, I pushed it from the standpoint of how do we aggregate just what we talked about? How do we focus on local, focus on eating seasonal? And uh, quite frankly, what happened then and played out was the fact that a series of managers were hired by the board of directors who All they wanted to try and do was compete with the Costco's and the natural grocers and the Walmarts. And I kept trying to tell them, you are going to drive this out of business in a hurry because you can't compete with them at a scale. There's no way price point you can compete, but you need to do it. You need to focus on 
the localness and the producers and tell their story and people will support it. Well, I lost and that food co-op closed this past year, you know, and uh, I think it's just an example of going down the wrong path. If that co-op, it had a commercial kitchen, served food, had everything in there, fully able to take those excess tomatoes, for instance, and as you said, make salsa, tomato sauce, whatever, could have done all that, marketed it there. The community, I believe, would have supported it. But instead, it became where 95% of the store was just, uh, the shelves were stocked with items bought off the, the truck that came around once a week rather than from local farmers. That's just a, a sure way to fail. And I think yeah, that exemplifies what you said. It's yeah. a completely different model. And I think that's why yeah. the, the, the work of sharing these stories, why is regenerative, you know, a, a better option or why is the food based off of, you know, Dr. Van Vliet's work? Like why should, should that price command, uh, you know, a premium uh, versus, mm -hmm. and, you know, as, as we scale and as we get more efficient, the price is going to come down uh, to be, mm -hmm. to be comparable. And, you know, having having price based off of nutrients, I guess, is what I was getting at earlier. Instead yeah. of price per pound, price per nutrient density, I, I I don't think there's a comparison, Gabe. Yeah, let let me tell you something else. And this story was related to me um, just here recently. But there's a program going on in Oklahoma where, as they provide. Um, women, infants, children, assistance for food. They have a program going on where, where they need to source that as regeneratively grown and raised food, okay? And they're tracking it. Then what they're doing is they are tracking the health of those families and their health care dollars compared to those that are just sourcing at conventional markets. I don't want to give a figure here um, because I know I'm going to get this wrong, but it was pretty amazing in the lowering of the actual healthcare costs of those individuals who are eating the regeneratively grown and raised food. Okay. So what this program, and I, I visited with the lady who was in charge of it, she talked about now she was going to the state of Oklahoma because they have a they have this pilot project that proved out saying, hey, here's where we need to put our money. We're going to not only have healthier people, but we're going to be supporting our local farmers and ranchers. Talk about a win-win program. I see huge opportunities going forward for programs such as this. Uh, yeah, I would like to get some more information on, on that. Lord, that's just right next to me. Um, so when, when you say that, it brings back all the health side of that we work on. So it's honestly the reason agriculture is so important and gets covered so much with what we do is because it directly supports health of what you just said. And so, you know, there's mm -hmm. been 
numerous studies in prisons and schools to where they've even just given uh, vitamins and minerals and the behavior and the health and and the mm. compliance worth you know it's kids not not moving nonstop it bouncing around because they're they're nourished and their brains are nourished and so that's just a, an example kind of a means of an avenue to get that in there and so that that's the kind of stories that we gotta we gotta get out there especially you know as a parent it's First of all, parent, I have four. Parenting is ridiculously difficult, and I want to pull my hair out all the time. But there is a huge difference in the way that my children behave when they have eaten nourishing food, when they've been playing in the sunshine, when they've got those bare feet on the ground, when when they are, you know, in the optimal human condition, right? The behavior is night and day. And so I think as more people see that, uh, you know, you think... Uh, ADHD is just at a at running rampant. You have the autism thing, and you know, you know, Doctor Sneff has dove into that deeply. It's all stinking goes back to nutrients and the lack of toxins, like that. And so we can change everything in win, win, win. Oh, absolutely. We have a healthcare crisis going on, not only in this country but globally, and I contend it starts with the soil. And it starts with our food and how our food is grown and raised. And I contend that most people today have no idea what nutrient-dense food tastes like. They've ate food-like substances their entire life. You know, and, and what's the old saying? You know, if your grandma wouldn't recognize what's on the label, it's not really food. And you look at these labels and what's on there, and it's like, why would you want to put that in your, ch your own mouth or your children's mouths? You know, it shouldn't do that. We have to get back to food as preventative medicine. And focusing on the, the regenerative aspect and the localized, you almost force it to be healthier. So one thing that surprised me um, is actually a lot of the plant toxins that are in, in, in plants. And so this is the defense chemicals that they protect themselves from bugs, from being eating at the wrong time. And so one thing that, uh, you know, Dr. Anthony Chafee told me was with a tomato that the tomato has all kinds of toxins in it to keep it from getting eaten. But right there as it ripens, vines ripens, the plant pulls out these toxins, that way it will be eaten. So its seeds will mm -hmm. be distributed, you know, the, the life cycle of the plant. And so it is impossible for that scenario to play out in the conventional model because they're going to be picked green. They're going to be shipped across the country. They're going to be stored. Then they're going to ripen up. So there has been no ability for the plant to pull out these, yep. these toxins. So yep. we are eating a completely different tomato when we get it off of a grocery store shelf versus yep. by getting it right out of your garden. And that's, yep. that's a fact. I, I reminds me of a client of mine in Washington state very large apple grower. And I was out there during his operation. He said, Gabe, this just bores me. He said, because what's happened now, we have this production model down to where it has nothing to do with food quality. It has everything to do with appearance, shape. And he said, you know, I can harvest these apples, put them in a warehouse, pump liquid nitrogen through it, suck all the oxygen out, 
And 11 months later, you would think I just picked that apple. But he said, knowing what I know, you can tell there's not much nutrients in that apple. Yeah. You know, and isn't it sad? That's what we've come to today. That's what our food production model is. It's all, it's all about the, the looks. And I, I think that's that's a big benefit to the farmer's markets, uh, too, though. I think that when, mm-hmm. when somebody eats a real tomato versus a, a, a store-bought, uh, you, the mm-hmm. taste says it all. And you, you just you, you trail it down, and then there's you know a lot more go. Uh, another really good example that I found with the whole the, the plant talks and things was a persimmon. You take a bite of a persimmon that's not ripe, and you're it. That's that's funny, right? To do to, to yeah. a kid or somebody that's not expecting it, but that's a yeah. miserable experience. Yeah. But man, when that dude is ripe, they're amazing. And yeah. it's just another example of the seasonal. It's not always available. It's got to be ripe. It's got to yeah. be at the peak of harvest. And uh, Bill Bill Schumer is the one that told me about that one. Yeah, it shows you how uh, sheltered a life gave brown leaves. So. Just last week, I ate my first persimmon. I had never, somebody sent me some for Christmas. I had never tried one because it's not like we have them growing locally here in North Dakota. So, <laughs> so what do you think? Yeah. Do you like the persimmon? I, I, it was okay. I'll put it, it that okay. way. It was okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, I don't uh, Gabe, know. What, I have nothing to compare it to. <laughs> that's well. I can guarantee you, when they're green, yeah, it's an experience that is not pleasant. So, uh, mm-hmm. what's what's next for you, my friend? What's uh, what's twenty twenty four going to be like? Well, been busy. Uh, you know, the documentary "Common Ground" is being released, and it's been theaters all over. Um, so that's kept me a little bit busy. I really want to just focus on uh, Regenified and moving Regenified to the next level, uh, helping uh, get supply chains and farmers together so that we can uh, transfer more of these supply chains to regeneratively grown and raised food. I think that's just going to be critical. So that's kind of where my focus is going to be this next year. Well, let me let me know what I can do to help that uh, the supply chain and the you know the front end, I guess so to speak, is is my world, uh, my day job at least. So they the only thing that I feel like the solution is exactly what you said on the don't feed the world, feed your neighbors, feed yourself. So this yeah. localized regenerative food system that's replicatable everywhere you know the farming you know methodology is replicatable anywhere i think that a methodology for for localized uh, food um i think that's so important so i'm you got an ally in me brother thanks logan always great to visit with you likewise and we will uh visit soon all right thank you Thank you for joining us on Sowing Prosperity. Be sure to follow along across the social media platforms, including YouTube, and be sure to go to sowingprosperity.com.